Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, office coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. PhD candidate at the University of East Anglia, to discuss representations of the Ainu in Japan and what the withdrawal of the Ainu dance from the 2020 Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony says about the theme of unity in Japan. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Amanda. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So first off, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Well, there are actually a few different threads to this story. First of all, I grew up on Kickapoo, Kanza, Osage, and Sioux ancestral lands. Sioux is sort of a catch-all French term for the Dakota, Nakota, and Lakota peoples of the plains in what is now North America. And just knowing that and having that as that background to where I just grew up, the land that I lived on, definitely instilled this passion for Indigenous rights that has now become a cornerstone of my studies. Secondly, during my undergraduate studies, I was taken under the wing of a brilliant Latin American specialist, Dr. Kim Morris, and she also shared the same sort of passions. Her Indigenous peoples were in Venezuela, and that Indigenous rights passion into the academic stage for me, and that was a big turning point in where I wanted to go long-term with my studies. And I think you've actually heard this one before, but Princess Mononoke, (laughs) uh, the brilliant film by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. The first time I watched this was middle school. I was early teenage years, and I had no idea that there were people in Japan other than the Japanese. And I knew that I had to know more, right? And while that film addresses specifically the Amishi, which is a complex term, (laughs) that doesn't always directly apply to the Ainu, it led me to the Ainu of Hokkaido. And so that's where I'm at, my PhD. Great. So let's begin by looking at the Ainu. The Ainu are an indigenous people who have long inhabited the northern regions of Japan, based primarily in Hokkaido, with a presence in northern Toku, as well as islands further north, currently in Russian territory. The Ainu have long been removed from the affairs of the main Japanese island of Honshu, developing their own language, faiths, and cultures from central Japan, with contact between them beginning around the 14th century. Uh, Now, conflict persistently marked this relationship, culminating in the cultural assimilation of the Ainu from the 19th century, in particular during the Meiji period from 1868. Could you expand on that for us, Amanda? Absolutely. So first off, I would like to start with the fact that I am not yet an expert in Ainu studies, and it is a massive field. So while I'm going to try to touch on all the important things, I may miss a few things here and there. But I knew Japanese relationships go back centuries. Some people even think prior to the 14th century. It depends on who exactly you consider to be Ainu. But the people who lived in what was called at the time Ezo were facilitators of trade. They traded across the Okatsi and between Japan and the mainland. And that was their relationship with the Yamato people of the Honshu Islands, for the mainland Japanese islands. And conflicts began after that 14th century turning point 
because Japan wanted to expand their control over the trade systems. And this can be seen most clearly in the Tokugawa shogunate. And it was Toyotomi Hideyoshi who established the Matsume Daimyo in Hokkaido in order to facilitate and control that trade that was coming from the north. And it was the Matsume family were given essentially sovereignty over the entire island of Hokkaido without consideration necessarily to, to the Ainu peoples. The Matsume family, though, may or may not have genealogical connections to the Ainu peoples. And they were that middleman between Ainu and Japanese. And throughout the Tokugawa period, Japan became more and more expansionist. They were taking over more and more trade, and the Ainu were forced to turn to labor. They still hunted and fished for the Japanese, and they provided um, hunting birds were, were a favorite of the imperial family that the Ainu were able to provide. And by 1868, when the Meiji Emperor took over, much of the Ainu had fallen into poverty due to their trade being taken over by the Japanese. And in 1869, the Meiji Emperor officially took over Hokkaido and renamed it to Hokkaido as we know it today and made the Ainu labor legal and started taking away land rights. And this was to facilitate the colonization of Hokkaido. With the Meiji Emperor, modernization and westernization were the name of the game. They wanted Hokkaido to be the center of industrialization, but they also needed it to still be that primary resource facility. And so the colonizers were encouraged to go to Hokkaido and set up farms and or small industrial facilities, basically. And that displaced more and more Ainu. And all of that culminated in the 1899 Hokkaido Former Aborigines Protection Act, which is such a mouthful. <laughs> I will just call it the Protection Act from now on. But it was meant as the legal format for the protection of the Ainu, protection in air quotes. It outlined education, health policies, and farming policies that the government thought would make the Ainu into Japanese citizens. This act is a prime example of the Meiji's effort towards homogeneity. Their goal was to make all Ainu into the perfect Japanese farmer. Unfortunately, that's not how the Ainu work. They are hunters and gatherers, essentially. Um, while they do very small farming plots, they, they subsist off of hunting. And the Ainu just, like, they just couldn't be translated into Japanese citizens like the Meiji wanted. And over the course of the 20th century, there's been many revisions to the Protection Act in order to try to meet the Ainu halfway, and it just doesn't work very well, which leads up to your next question. Sure, well, we'll lead, lead on to that then. So um, as your upcoming article on the Ainu and the 2020 Tokyo Olympics deals with contemporary issues, could you tell us about the state of the Ainu community as of today? You uh, mentioned the Japanese government passed a law in 1997 called the Ainu New Law, and it would be great if you could tell us a bit more about that too. Yeah, they were super creative with that name, right? <laughs> <laughs> but let's go ahead and start with the Hokkaido Ainu Association. It was established in 1946, and it was part of the third or fourth revision of the Protection Act, and it was 
meant to be that go between between the Ainu people and the Japanese government. And for clarity, it was renamed Hokkaido Utari Association, which is what the Ainu referred to themselves as in 1961, and then back to the Hokkaido Ainu Association in 2009. So I will continue to call it just the association because that's the easiest way. But after World War II, the association was the primary organization of the Ainu in Japan. They were the ones who petitioned the government for rights, who visited the UN, who facilitated trips all over the world to meet with other indigenous groups. And they sought, and still do today, just basic indigenous rights. And it was them who... They didn't write the new law, but they kind of set the stage for it to be presented to the government in 1997. And it was them as well as this um, Nibutani Dam court case, which there was an industrial company, I don't remember exactly what the name of them was, who dammed the Nibutani River, which is a very important cultural river to the Ainu. And Shigeru Kayano and one of his fellow Ainu fought in the court to get it removed, right? And they ended up winning, but the dam was already built. But the thing that needs to be be pointed out here is that the Japanese court system recognized the Ainu as an indigenous people with indigenous rights. And so that and the Ainu Association pushed through the 1997 new law, which replaced the Protection Act, which was in my opinion, it's its biggest accomplishment. The Protection Act was outdated and it did not serve Japan or the Ainu peoples. Unfortunately, this new law still did not recognize the Ainu as indigenous peoples. It did, however, set up a system for Ainu cultural promotion, which is what we're seeing re- continuously recycled into the 21st century which comes to 2019, when the new law was replaced. This new law was inspired by the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was adopted in 2007, which is also a mouthful. The UN loves long names. (laughs) But this law claims to protect and respect Ainu culture, but the law does not meet the expectations set out by the 2007 Declaration, which Japan voted in favor for. Still, the Japanese government continues to deny Ainu the status of indigenous people. And the reason this is so important is just that label will bring the Ainu onto a more international stage. It will establish the Ainu as an indigenous people alongside the Navajo Nation in the United States or the Cree Nation in Canada. And just having that label will go so far. And, it, and and Japan just continuously decides against giving that label. I see. So let's take a look at the Tokyo Olympics. You make the point that the opening ceremony is intended to show the unity of Japan, yet the Ainu dance was cut due to time constraints. Could you explain for us where else we can expect Ainu representation in the Olympics, if at all? So the biggest complication to this issue is COVID-19. <laughs> the lovely thing that is keeping us all inside. (laughs) So cutting the dance due to time constraints, really, I don't, I don't see as too big of a deal in in the fact that the Ainu are being treated as just any other group in Japan. 
in 2020, when this was announced, the opening ceremony planner, Nomura Masai, did say that he wanted to have the INU represented at the Olympic marathon in Sapporo. Then COVID happened. So things are a bit more complicated. I'm not sure if there will be anything in Sapporo. I don't know if the restrictions will allow it. But I guess the biggest place of Ainu representation that Japan wants to put forward is Upapoi, the National Ainu Museum and Park in Shiraoi. This museum is a huge project and Japan has poured tons and tons of money into it. And they're kind of setting it forward as that Olympic representation. It was meant to open, I think in May, 2020. So only a couple months before the 2020 Olympics. And it is currently open. So in an earlier episode, I discussed with Professor David Rea, the uh, future direction of the Nihon Jinon discourse, the, the idea of Japanese uniqueness, of which homogeneity is a key theme. And while David thought that this discourse is on its way out, these planned Olympic ceremonies, such as, well, as, as you mentioned, the already open National Ainu Museum and Park, which in Japanese is the Minzoku Gyosei Shoucho Kyukan, or the symbolic space of ethnic harmony, sounds like certain notions of Nihonjinon have endured here. Uh, do you think this reflects an opportunity for Ainu to independently gain representation on the world stage, or is it merely an opportunity for Ainu to be represented as Japanese? So I'm actually going to say neither. Okay. Uh, I knew have more or less already been representing themselves abroad, uh, as I mentioned with the Hokkaido Ainu Association and Kayano, uh, very prominent, who passed away in the early 21st century, actually met with the Cree peoples in Canada and helped facilitate conversations between the Cree and the Canadian government about rights. So th- like they're already going abroad. They don't need the Japanese government to help them with that they've actually chosen to go through the UN and they are active members of the UN. As for being represented as Japanese, I don't think the museum really facilitates that because if you want to be Japanese in your Ainu, all you have to do is say you're not Ainu. It's very easy to just fly under the radar. Um, Many censuses have gone out um, that try to measure the Ainu population And I think it was like 24,000 the last time they had a census, which was in 2013. I hope I'm not completely wrong on that number. (laughs) The estimate is actually that there's more than double that number because it only measures those who are on Hokkaido. And you don't have to answer the census if you don't want to. And many Ainu choose not to. And so by like playing into that, or choosing to identify with Upapoi, the Ainu are kind of sealing themselves out in, within the broader conversation. And I do think that Upapoi is going to allow them to have that opportunity to single themselves out if they want and to partake in their culture in this traditional historic way. I think the problem is going to arise when there's still that other and um, traditionally, and I know there's multiple kinds of museums now, but traditionally museums are a place of other. It's either really cool science stuff or really old history stuff. 
And by identifying with Upapoi, the Ainu are kind of giving into that. And I don't mean that in like a bad way or anything. Like it's definitely a way to claim your culture. But Japan is setting it up as the only Ainu representation, which is historicizing and still othering the Ainu. Does that answer your question? It does, yeah. I just want to say as a museum studies student, I, I, I agree that museums are problematic in that way, but they are trying to change, you know, they are trying to address yes. these issues. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this idea of uh, international um, collaboration between indigenous movements. Uh, could you expand a bit, a bit more on that? I can certainly try. Um, <laughs> Like I said at the beginning, I'm certainly no expert in this, and, and Indigenous studies is huge, right? Sure. But I have noticed, and I actually I attended a conference, I think it was two weeks ago, about Indigenous studies, and there really is a lot of collaboration across current national borders, especially in North America, which is where I'm from. I'm from Kansas, like I said at the top, Um and there's no borders for indigenous peoples, like the Canadian American border, the Mexican American border, it does not exist. And that's kind of what I love about indigenous studies is that borders are not a thing. They come together, especially through the UN, to fight for their rights and to fight for their culture to continue. By being so international, they're able to gain the international audience, which has resulted in I think it was the Keystone Pipeline that was finally shut down by Biden because the U.S. government is getting so much pressure from the outside now. And I think that can be seen in Japan today with the Olympics. Upapoi, I think, is a product of international pressure. All these other countries, the United States and Canada especially, are kind of attempting to bring in more indigenous rights. And Upapoi, I think, is Japan's version of this. And had there not been this international conversation of indigenous peoples, I don't think that would have happened. So the Ainu are not the only indigenous people of Japan. So I'm curious about how other communities have been represented in the Tokyo Olympics, such as the various peoples of Okinawa, for example. Could you share with us how other peoples and regions have been represented? So unfortunately, I have seen nothing. And I think that's partially a product of the Okinawan and the other Ryukyuan peoples themselves. A lot of them, just like the Ainu, choose to assimilate and choose to identify as Japanese. Mm -hmm. Because, frankly, it's easier. And there's nothing really wrong with identifying as Japanese. Like, it doesn't necessarily take away their traditions, And for many of them, it's just a label. So I don't think there were any movements to have an inclusion of Okinawan peoples in the Tokyo Olympics. But I do also think that COVID has played into this. Because of when COVID broke, a lot of these conversations were halted. So had there been no COVID, I think there would have been more conversation about indigenous representation, including the Okinawans within the Tokyo Olympics. see. It's a shame we couldn't see the uh, ideal scenario, I guess, that would have been more insightful as to how far other indigenous groups would have been represented. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for answering all my questions, Amanda. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? 
So I've only just started my PhD. Um, <laughs> and so the majority of my time is taken up by just, you know, reading and stuff like that. But my current project is actually looking at the economic and culture exchange of the Okots Sea from the perspective of the Ainu. Alongside this line of inquiry, I'm looking into bringing all of the various Ainu collections that are housed here in the UK up to date. A lot of them, the research has just fallen behind because Ainu studies is centered in Japan. And so people in Britain don't always care. Like they want to go to Japan, not stay here. Sure. And so I'll be working primarily with the collection of Dr. Neil Gordon Munro that is currently held at the National Museum of Scotland. And I hope to incorporate artifacts from the British Museum and the Pitt Rivers and just bring these all into conversation of how the Ainu facilitated and how they were impacted by the trade that happened north of Japan. Oh, fascinating. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you, Amanda. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to Amanda's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined for our series finale by Toshio Watanabe, Professor of Japanese Arts and Cultural Heritage at the Sainsbury Institute, to discuss Gardens of War Memory, going over his latest project of transnational gardens across the Pacific with ties to the Asia-Pacific War. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>